Hello, this is episode four in a series where I'm trying to take a novel from brainstorming first ideas all the way through to either a final draft or failure. I don't want to start each episode with increasingly long recaps, so if you'd like to catch up, the first episode is called Writing a Novel Part One. There's a link to it in the show notes of today's episode, and all episodes are on my SoundCloud page. That's soundcloud.com forward slash Clare. Thank you for listening, and may I say what a delight it is to have you along. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. We have on this here show three balusters holding up the polished handrail of our writing staircase. One to help you write more, two to help you write better and three to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end, I chat to authors, poets, playwrights and a glorious miscellany of story-adjacent people finding out how they do what they do and the secrets to the art of books and stories. I sometimes read listeners' first pages and offer feedback and right now, at this moment, I'm trying to write a book semi-live as part of the podcast so you can actually see inside the process, my process, a process, and we can reflect together on the bizarre cobbled-together thing which is making a story work. Last session I had a kind of semi-productive crack at fleshing out one of our antagonist characters who at the moment is known only as the Admiral. We looked at possible settings, possible motivations, maybe I want them to wield a trident because a trident fight might be neat. That's about the sophistication of (laughs) my ideas process. I don't know, I, I still feel like there's major unfinished business there. It's still nebulous. But but no matter, we're going to work out what to do as we advance. I say we, mostly me, uh, although I've had some lovely emails, actually, and that's been really fun to start, the, you know, the beginnings of a dialogue about this. You know, people making suggestions, people responding to stuff I've said in the show. I, it's, I, I'm really glad that some of you are enjoying being part of this process. And one thing that I think I felt by the end of last episode was that what I needed, what I was pining for, of course, was my favourite thing to harp on about. Crunchy specificity. It's something of a running joke with long-term listeners and indeed long, long-term readers when this was not a podcast but a blog. This phrase is one I've repeated so many times, it's almost lost its heft. You know, it's become a little bit of a cliche, maybe you don't hear it anymore when I say it, you can anticipate when it's coming. But I love it, still, despite all that, because I think if we return to why we write, it's the same reason we do drugs, right? I mean, I say we, I don't, you may or may not. You may be on recreational drugs right now, of course, in which case... Alan, this is God. Alan, you've been in a coma for 30 years. Please, none of this is real. Wake up. Wake up. Is why it's so fundamental to bringing a story to life. Abstract concepts are so powerful for humans. The concept of zero, for example. The idea that the absence of a thing is itself a thing. The idea encompassed in the word idea. Pretty much every noun in my last five sentences has 
been on the abstract end of the scale, right? Like we're talking about one level back from reality. In some sense, we're talking about the rules of reality, ways we might make sense of it and predict how reality works. Love, justice, forgiveness, compassion. All of these are abstract nouns and we need them and we need the concepts and they can guide us and they enrich our lives. And as I've said, abstractions like zero, like negative numbers or, or decimals, these all have tremendous explanatory power and they're the foundation of a vertiginously terrifying tower of contemporary technologies, all of which is a big, whirly, round-the-houses way of my saying, look, I am not at all against abstract nouns or abstraction in general. I don't want you to think about that. Well, to think that when I'm banging on about crunchy specificity, that Tim is saying abstraction is bad. No, no, no. Nor, let the record show, am I against simple words. Man, dog, hand, door. They're not aesthetic evils. But, for me... Sometimes you, as a writer, have to squint your brain a bit before you describe the thing. Just tighten the focus. Part of it comes from my working out jokes on stage. I think that's where I alighted on this as an important concept. This idea of tightening the semantic width encompassed by the word you choose, right? So in my experience, just delivering lines, the same lines, night after night, I've gone and done the Edinburgh Festival and done a hundred shows in three and a half weeks, right? Most of which were my solo show delivering the same jokes over and over and over and over. And you, you just for your own sanity, you start tweaking bits here and there. And... One night you just might change the reference that you used the previous night and you just see what lands best. And in my experience, a specific reference is almost always funnier than a vague one. You know, when I mentioned UK TV presenters Richard Maidley and Judy Finnegan being kind to my mum, which is a true story, it really happened, you know, I could say they helped her up after she tripped over a dog in a pub, but it would actually sometimes get a laugh or at least a chuckle if I said they helped her up after she tripped over a black Labrador in a pub in Sirencester. I don't know why Sirencester is a bit funny. Like, it's not a joke, obviously. That's not like, that wasn't my best gag that I, I, I'm mentioning there. That wasn't my material, like telling niche anecdotes. Well, all right, it, that sort of was my material. And, you know, I was... <laughs> That was, you know, one of the downsides of it, really. But it's this idea that sometimes you can get a cadence laugh and a little chuckle out of just going in on specificity, even though there's no intrinsic humour to what you're saying. Sturgeon is funnier than fish. Chinchilla is funnier than pet. Macaroon is funnier than cake. They're not necessarily the funniest iteration of those categories, but they're funnier than just stating a class of thing. But it's not that the specific thing is intrinsically funny. It's, if I say, so I was walking down the road and I saw a Rottweiler driving a Ford Capri, that's not really funny at all. Not except if you we're placing the bar incredibly low. I wouldn't expect that to get a big laugh. 
despite the fact, right, I've been very specific about the make of car and the breed of dog. It doesn't make it funny. Uh, and the point I want to make here is that what specificity does is it increases the resolution of your image. It lifts vividness. And if the image or punchline happens to be comic, the more vivid you make it, the more its comic nature will be heightened. Also bear in mind that not every reader has filed away in their mind exact images to fit specific subcategories. We don't all have huge technical knowledge across a variety of domains. For some readers, there may be a clear and immediate distinction between a Corgi driving a Subaru Impreza and a Jack Russell driving a Triumph Dolomite. But for others, including me, who maybe aren't car or canine literate, those are just words. And maybe... Sometimes you would have been better off delivering the quick, infinitely semantically fungible version. So I was walking down the road and I saw a dog driving a car. Although, and I am about to get back to the novel, don't worry, I just think this is important. Frankly, it's good for me to work out how I feel about this and why I make the decisions I do as a writer. That's why I'm doing this, because when you explain something to someone else, it's a bit like... One of the principles, I guess, behind therapy when it works is you're having to explain stuff that maybe you just take for granted to someone who doesn't have access to your thoughts and in doing that maybe you start to put together a story and you start to break stuff down and explain it and maybe you start creating some kind of new explanatory lattice and some kind of personal accessibility to what you think about this stuff and that's what I'm going through but look cadence and mouthfeel are also non-trivial contribu contributors to, to why you might choose certain words triumph dolomite it's just it's just a funny name for a car. I don't actually I can't actually bring to mind what a Triumph Dolomite looks like. I just know that it's well, it wasn't old when it came out. But I guess my only experience of Triumph Dolomites are that they're quite rusty and they're kind of shit buckets, right? Triumph Dolomite, you know, you but you probably don't 100% need to know what one looks like, need to picture one need to be able to place yourself in the back seat and get the smell of one. You don't need all of those things just to find the collocation of those two words a bit amusing. And then he pulls up in a triumph dolomite. It's there's just something there. And it, and it feels, even though it's not funny, it makes the anecdote that you're telling feel more believable because you've nailed the specific make of car. And it's a triumph dolomite. It's just, it's, it has a nice cadence and mouthfeel. It's like a wankle rotary engine or a kazoo. Triumph dolomite. I think the, the stress pattern there is a trocky, then a dactyl, right? So if I'm not right, if I'm not wrong, it's triumph. Like, so triumph. Stress, unstress. And then dolomite, stress, unstress, unstress. Triumph, dolomite. That's a good format for a name, right? Stress, unstress, stress, unstress, unstress. Triumph, dolomite. Lucas Delamere. Baron Giftigbalm. Percy Wintergeist. Centra tyrant bane poppy never dead to me those are like interesting sounding names right there's something about them that makes them pop and i i think a large part of that is the cadence 
Sure, they're a bit pulp fantasy, but I'm writing pulp fantasy. They're perfect. You know, now, of course, if you have every character follow that naming convention, it, it would very soon start to sound like a bit. But for one or two, I mean, Poppy Never Dead. Who's that? Poppy Never Dead. I feel weirdly more inspired by like a mystery like that, but crucially a mystery with texture, with clear jigsaw edges than I do about a blank space, you know, a, a smooth lacuna like we had with the Admiral's character last time. In the same way, look, I feel much more enthusiastic. I feel an actual physiological response to the prospect of writing about Mother Nidus and the Church of the Silver Pattern than I do about writing about an admiral whose stronghold is a floating island and who fights with the trident. Now, it's not that the latter is an inherently worse idea. In lots of ways, it is... It is more of an idea, right? It has more to it. It commits to more. But I just feel like naming something. I mean, we've all encountered magic systems where knowing the true name of something gives you power over it. You know, you learn the true name of a demon and you can bind it to your will, that sort of thing. I just wonder whether there, maybe there's some poetic truth to that. Or possibly this is just how my brain works and yours might come at the same problems from a completely different angle. I'm not selling you the one true path. It might not even be the one true path for me. Um, but it feels, at the moment, today, like the most fruitful angle for me approaching this problem and the problems I've got with the book now. So let's go for it. Let's generate some more specificity. Unfortunately, this is what I was planning to do anyway. So I'm glad that I'm glad that my peregrinations have led us here rather than going off another cliff edge. That's convenient. I don't know. Look, should we just... Should we just go for names? Character names. Uh, there could be some more trochidactyl ones. Samson Palindrome, that sort of thing. What other formats do I like? I like it when there's a long lyrical first name, then a short, unremarkable surname. Desperation Jones. Guillotine Wong, that sort of thing. Of course, in this world, common surnames would probably be different to ours uh to in ours the, the the common stock of surnames would probably not be identical to our world um but it's more that it's a specific unlikely first name one that is either an in it, well no actually desperation and guillotine are both nouns aren't they one is an abstract one one is a concrete one but it doesn't seem to ma matter. I think desperation is just as interesting a first name as guillotine. Uh, but I like it when they're followed by the one-beat thud of a surname. Palimpsest hack. I also like uh, double iams, especially where one is a real word and the other is a more familiar name. Johnny Panic. Silence Johnson. Silence Johnson <laughs> sounds... Uh, Sounds that I mean that's teetering on comedic, but I, I kind of have a thing for those old Victorian virtue names. While we're on the subject, you know, patience, temperance, charity, chastity. I know they're these rather backward patriarchal impositions because they tend to be uh, given to women rather than men. So like uh, they're not things that I think I would you know I, they weren't ones under consideration when we were thinking of names for my daughter but that's not the bit I like right that I'm like well I'm glad that we're calling someone temperance or chastity I've got issues with that but I just like the sound of them I really I think patience is a really really nice name I like it a lot 
like I'm not a Christian, um, but I like the name God Bless. For me, it's it's just a really nice name. It's just a lovely name. God Bless Panic. Imagine that. What a great name. So look, shall I spend 10, 20 minutes just listing some names? I'm doing this with half an eye on steering my suggestions towards a fantastical world rather than some of you may have it attempted or encountered my sort of quick starter exercise where I get writers to come up with just a list of names, just a list of names of people, non-real people. And those can go all over the shop, but I think I will sort of funnel these towards a coherent fantasy world-ish kind of thing. So maybe there won't be any David Joneses or Matthew Kims. I grant myself explicit permission to be bad, to make mistakes. In fact, this exercise will have been a failure if I don't slam it into the barriers a couple of times and write some demonstrably shite names in my list. That's how many you know I should be generating, enough that I cannot possibly make them all even adequate. And I think also the line between bad and genius is often blurry. So in some way contravening normal rules, in some way getting it wrong, is I think when I'm going to be in the right zone. Otherwise I'm going to write just a, an entire list of passable, non-troublemaking, forgettable names. And that's not what I'm looking for here. I can tone them down later, I can tweak them, I can, you know, I can get the sliders and the faders and kind of move all that down and EQ it in post. But I don't want to, I don't want to start kicking in my internal editor at exactly the time I need my wild, exuberant artist side to come out. I mean, we've got all these stereotypes about artists and creators as essentially immature children, divas. Uh, they are demanding, selfish, preening, vain. Self-indulgent is the one that I have most problems with. We say, don't be... Oh, I, I hear so many people talking about that they don't want to be self-indulgent. Life is short. Indulge yourself, my friend. You are wonderful and you deserve... You deserve the bounty and the banquet of self-indulgence who else is going to indulge you it, it harms nobody do it and especially do it when you're creating this is your book if you're holding yourself back if you're this self-denial is the great plague the great epidemic that sweeps sweeps us all you know that even when we're writing our own novels that we hold ourselves back God, don't be self-indulgent. Don't, I mean, please don't, don't give yourself pleasure. Don't write something that makes you go, at last, at last this. This key that fits perfectly into the complicated tumblers of my heart. If you're not going to write it, who is? And I know sometimes we connect with that in other works of art, in other people's books, in other people's music. Something that 
fits inside some part of us so wonderfully that makes us feel connected. But how, if, if someone else has done that for you, how do you know? <laughs> you know, what are the chances that there are other people out there who have that same shape as you have? If someone else has managed to do that for you, then it's not just about, you're not just denying, it's not just you that you're denying these things. It's other people. Don't engage in self-denial, and especially don't engage in self-denial in your first draft of all places. If you want to come back later and think about the reader's experience, by all means do that. Because a lot of the time you just won't have created the thing you meant to. Even when you were kind of giving yourself full reign, you stumbled, you tried to whistle and you sharted, that's fine. You can come back and tidy that up and change your lexical underpants. But you don't need to sort of preemptively prevent yourself from making any mistakes because that's just not fun. And the chance of doing something great is increased if you really, really, really let yourself, you know, let, let rip, you know, that's what I think anyway. Um, and, and I'm going to have a go at it now. Really, it's going to be a success if I get one that makes me go, hmm, I'd like to use that. And, and frankly, I can, I, I think I can just, it doesn't matter if I stack it completely and all of them are rubbish because I've already got, I already enjoyed Poppy Never Dead. I already liked that one. That made me happy. I heard that one. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I quite like that. So I can, I can, I can, I'm just free to go buck wild and, and, and just fire buckshot at the walls and completely sandblast them with utter crap. And, and how liberating is that? So look, I will go off and do this and... um it's just a low stakes warm up. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, if you'd like to have a go at this yourself with your own list of names, generate some for whatever purpose, maybe for a project you're working on, or maybe just random to have fun and <laughs> be free and liberated. I warmly invite you to join me. If you don't want to, that's fine too. Either way, I'm going to spend a few minutes doing this while you step into the time machine and shoom ahead to when I'm done. See you then. Incidental music break. 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 And I'm back. Here's the names I got. Ferrantus Tusk. Zeb Pickle. Porcelina Cassowary. Merit Paracast. Oddly Bodkin. Sarrow Vesper. Jesper Longthroat. Merlin Ernest. Merowin False. Tonsils Zang. Chess Zibruga. Mendelev Risk, Punch Me Deblin, Kring Spit for Whiskey, Marriott Odega, Perry Anxious, 
Anguish de Borg, Lenis Pilfer, Trumpkin Throttle, Niles Westfeather, Pilcrow Filthwit, Admiral Zweiklinger, Commodore Merrin Crash Galore, Lips Bosworth, Shark Teeth Drek, Lamia Ransom, Luce Cagoule, Vex Mispass, Terega Lagafex, Prentice Goom, Lung Pepper Crunk, Prince Halsifier, Lady Meriweb Cortex, Judge Rancible Blench, Chamberlain Perdiffus Boon, Salabin Montrose, Cerise Blustermere, Pontival Royst, Trembulin Pennygeist, Roxel Staychild, Seldom Abraxas, Constable Luna Child, Paraminster Drek Rhombus. I'm really glad that that's the end of my list because reading those out, I started to feel like I was having a stroke. I think reading out so many words that are adjacent to but not quite familiar words felt very much like some important language part of my brain was sort of malfunctioning and I was saying words that made sense to me but were being mistranslated as I spoke. Out of those, look, I must admit I'm leaning towards um, Pontival Royst as the name of the national poet. Um, and many of these, it may turn out later, I've just lifted wholesale or slightly from familiar stuff. That may be what tends to happen when you're kind of coming out with stuff fast is a little bit of cryptoamnesia, a bit of um, crypto pilfering where you sort of end up coming up with things that rhyme with familiar things i don't know but pontival royst that works for me and royst has this echo of rather obvious echo of royal in it pontival royst and it just sounds like a silly silly name which i think is quite good for a national poet someone who's written this national epic maybe speaking of names uh, silly names i do like crash galore as a surname it's very evocative made you know it sits right on the edge of being immersion breaking right because it's not quite calling someone punchy knuckles but it certainly has that air of being a confection crash galore they're two words that are you know real words i think the important part is that crash galore is that i don't make crash galore like a go-kart driver or something that would be gen gen generally genuinely silly admiral Tendria Crash Galore. A treble dactyl there. Admiral Tendria Crash Galore. Dun 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 Admiral Tendria Crash Galore. You can imagine a butler announcing that name as the, uh, you know, as the Admiral arrives at a fancy ball. The Admiral Tendria Crash Galore. Do you know what? I, I don't think our admiral here is is male or female so that's decided funny how a name anchors things especially appropriate if it's anchoring an admiral ha ha do you get it um tendria crash galore a slick sweep of oiled black or blonde hair broad shoulders with gold galoon frogged tunic and cross belt plus get this 
that trident, remember, holstered like a dress sword, so in a scabbard attached at the hip, and it looks like a javelin, but when they get it out, they thumb a catch and kachuk. It extends and two tines pop out from the side. Bang, it's a trident with these three steel prongs. I think something scaled down from like, last time I was talking about like, a, I was imagining a full scale, full sized Poseidon style fishing trident, but I think a smaller one is probably more realistic and perhaps a, a bit less rustic. And realism is necessarily a virtue in this, but class is, you know, I think peasant militias are the type to wield pitchforks and scythes, sure. And the pole arms developed from farming implements actually improved. You know, they were actually pretty handy at resisting charges and dismounting horsemen. But when you look at stuff in the history of weapons like boarding axes used by the British Navy, which were what the tomahawk was ultimately modelled on. Those are things that need generally, I think, I, I'm no military history expert, but I, I think they generally needed to be a bit smaller to be useful when you might be fighting in close quarters, like on a ship, or you might be needing your other hand to hold on to something. And in the case of this character, the trident is explicitly the ceremonial dress sword version, right? So I actually... You know, to act, I'd like to actually, you know, I'd like it to actually work, to not just be a flimsy piece of shit. But it's, in this case, a custom one meant to show off the status of the user. Maybe not meant to survive months of campaigning on board ship. You know, you wouldn't want even a simple spring-loaded mechanism in a melee weapon if you can avoid it, right? Because if it fails in a key moment, boom, you are dead. Like, it only has to fail one in 200 combats where you pull it out and try to make it expand. And if you multiply that, if it's standard issue for the Navy, and you multiply one in 200 failures of the spring-loaded system across all your sailors and all engagements, that's a significant casualty rate just created by shitty weapon design. But here, for dress combat for one person... It's actually pretty reliable. They can all the springs and maintain it once a week. It's superior design. It's been custom made. It's re it's it's not been it's not been mass produced by the navy, so it's really really good. So it's more reliable, and it will look just badass when they whip it out for a scrap, and chuck catch the blade of someone's sword in those shining prongs as they spring out, admiral. Tendria crash galore. Yeah, like I feel already like I'm a bit closer. This fucking Admiral Tendria, Admiral Crash Galore, this fucking dominator of rooms, right? They're this huge presence, loud voice, broad shoulders, but lean, piercing eyes. Kind of all round Olympian, drinking champ, squeezes your shoulder emphatically while talking to you, grows orchids, and what are those, what are those, what are those vines called? Uh, Laniers? Right, uh, lianas. They're, 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 so lianas are are like a cross between vines and roots. They're um, uh, here's the here's the here's the first line from the Wikipedia page. Quote: 
A liana is a long-stemmed woody vine that is rooted in the soil at ground level and uses trees as well as other means of vertical support to climb up to the canopy in search of direct sunlight, end quote. So uh, they grow these lianas and these are things that crawl up other trees and drape off them as they drag themselves upwards towards the sunlight. And here Admiral Crash Galore is above the choking undergrowth on their floating stronghold, Nebula. And they've got this big chateau punched through with... this big wooden chateau, I'm imagining, that looks, in our eyes at least, kind of like this run-down, post-colonial... You know, you this used to be the governor's mansion. And now it's become a bit run down it hasn't been maintained quite so well and there are these big vines and orchids and lianas weaving through it growing in there uh all these plants all these non-indigenous species that they brought back from their various travels across continents securing protectorates for this nation what's their chateau called chateau Chateau, chateau, it's not, it's a chateau, Tim. Get your stresses right. What's their chateau called? Something house, I think. That sounds simple. Um, okay, so my reverse dictionary points out that the largest order of birds is passerine. I, I, I was thinking, I just looked up birds because I wanted something to do with flight. So, for now, passerine house home of Admiral Crash Galore. This seething hothouse of pilfered species high in their personal fiefdom, the aerial city of Nebula. Crash Galore, celebrity of their own city-state. God, wait, what's keeping Nebula aloft? What if our royal character, our monarch, what if they circumvented the problem of the Admiral, ultimately by finding some way to crash the entire city, stopping its ability to fly and sending it plummeting towards the ground or otherwise somehow piloting it and using it to ram or crash into something else they want to destroy or get inside. I, I, I keep using the word crash there. I, I apologise because that is leaning into nominative determinism. And really the only authors who can get away with that are Roger Hargreaves, creator of the Mr. Men, and Dickens, and I am neither. But, you know, what if... What if the Admiral is the one keeping this island afloat? What if killing the Admiral will sink the entire city, will make the entire floating city fall and smash and destroy whatever's beneath it and kill everyone on it. You know, what then? Does our monarch, our main character, hate them so much or believe it's so important that they would kill everyone on the island and potentially everyone beneath it just to kill the Admiral? I mean, that's a neat moment, right? If it looks like the battle has been won, you know, they've got the they've they've got the Admiral pinned with their own they're bloodied and the the blades of their trident is at their windpipe and they're panting and cornered and there's no way out for the admiral right and then they're like wait if you kill me 
you'll bring the whole fucking city down. And this is a revelation. To us, at least, but maybe also to the protag. You know, what if some aspect of the Admiral's life force or their mastery of wind and thunder magic is what sustains the floating island? It could be like a either that they're able to do that or they've deliberately doing this as a failsafe. People know. Why, why does the Admiral seem so unheeding of their safety? Well, because if you're on the island and you assassinate the Admiral, which is a pretty tall order anyway... I'm going to fucking crash the entire island. That's... That's... A reasonable bit of security. But maybe... I mean, is it even true? Maybe it's not true. It might just be something that the Admiral says... That the that, that Crash Galore says as a bluff. To stay our protag's hand. You know, chapter end. Cliffhanger. You can't kill... If you kill me, you'll bring all of fucking nebula down i'm the one who keeps it afloat end chapter with this pivotal test of character do you want vengeance enough to risk murdering all these people then maybe next you know next chapter begins and it and it and it was a lie but we don't realize that straight away but in the moment of hesitation the Admiral uses the delay to regain the advantage or escape. You know, even if I, you know, even if I don't want to go the whole hog and have the whole island crash because it's more interesting to me to have, to have our protagonist have to escape the island with the, you know, with, with an embargo, with a blockade and everyone's looking for them and they have to eventually run and scarper and having killed the Admiral jump and fall that might be more interesting than they're actually crashing the island. Um, but it could just be a good moment, this moment of doubt, this revelation. They're about to do it and then there's a twist. That's classic pulp, right? And then... But I think the reason it's more than just a head fake, <laughs> you know, like... You can't kill me. I'm your father. Not really. That would be really dumb, right? Are you? Nope. And then they just kick you in the nuts and run off. But the reason it's, I think it's better than a head fake, better than just a cat scare, is it reveals character. What we must have time for is how the monarch responds. Because it is a very revealing moment if they're like, fuck you. And and they kill the Admiral without even really thinking about it. Like, I don't give a shit. And they kill the Admiral and the place doesn't fall. But we and the Protag realise, oh shit, like, you are fully prepared to commit mass murder. Maybe the Protag, like, doesn't know. Maybe they, they hesitate. And then they just, something... Crash Galore says just enrages them so much they just drive it into their throat and kill them and then they're like oh and then the island doesn't fall but now there's a search party out for them and Crash Galore's body's been found and 
guards, 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 and they're running. But they realise and they have to deal with, fuck, I was actually prepared to kill everyone here. What kind of person am I? I am not a hero. That could be a really, you know, I'm prepared to commit mass murder, apparently, when it suits my purposes. Oh, how do I feel about that? Or, you know, or do they not? And the Admiral knocks them flat on their jacksy and escapes or turns the tables and takes them down and they get, I don't know, put in some kind of doom machine, you know, chained to the roof to be attacked by dragons or put in some kind of jail or the Admiral orders them to be put on some floating prison hulk and taken away. I don't know. But that's a, a reveal as well. We go, oh, there are some things they're not willing to do. It might not actually resolve the problem of whether if they don't get to kill the Admiral and then the Admiral uses that opportunity to get away, it might not actually resolve the problem of whether the island is going to fall. And they might have to work out some way of killing the Admiral while giving all the citizens warning the island's going to be dropping soon because I'm going to kill the Admiral. So you want to get off. Run to the docks, sky docks now. That could be it. It could be an extra wrinkle in the assassination, right? In the vengeance. So that to me is interesting. Those are both interesting twists, right? That's an interesting plot point. If I do the latter and they decide not to commit mass murder or what they consider mass murder, although, you know, this is a place filled with the Admiral's lackeys, they may consider it to be an act of war rather than an act of genocide. I don't know. But if they refrain, it probably makes them more sympathetic in a way, although I worry if that's then used for the Admiral to take advantage of them. I, I worry if, you know, if I write a story in which not committing mass murder is shown to make you a sucker, that's a that's a pretty bad implicit message, isn't it? Um, but maybe I, you know, maybe I can't at this stage in the first draft try to micromanage every possible connotation and interpretation of this novel. I can think about that later. But overall, as a general principle, I'm pretty sure I can trust readers not to go on to commit war crimes because Tim Clare implied it was OK in a fantasy adventure. Hopefully. Gosh, I hope I don't come to eat those words. I'll be feeling pretty sheepish if later a vicious tyrant goes on to cite me and my podcast project as a key inspiration for their crimes. Out of those other names, I like Tembulin Pennygeist. I'm sure I can use that somewhere. Maybe Tembulin Pennygeist sounds like a merchant or shopkeeper. I think Tembulin Pennygeist. I think that's a double dactyl too. Tembulin Pennygeist. Higgledy Piggledy Tembulin Pennygeist. Tembulin Ludwig van Beethoven. Tembulin Pennygeist. Mmm. I love my double dactyls. Judge Rancible Blench. Again, tonally right on the borderline between flavorful and drawing attention to itself as a silly name. Although, look, once it's in the milieu, you know, in the story and surrounded by other names with a similar tone, maybe, like, it would seem okay and not draw attention to itself in quite the same way. I don't know. 
I don't really have a place for a judge in the plot at the moment. Maybe there is one. Maybe that's something I can add. But Rancible Blench just... It could be like the broker or business magnate character that I suggested. Could be the political prisoner I mentioned in my list, locked up in a dungeon somewhere. You know, nothing wrong with going against the implications of the name. Because Rancible Blench sounds like a not very nice character, but could be... You know, it sounds like a, a squalid, corpulent character, but maybe Rancible Blench is actually pretty all right. You know, rather than some vile Toad King. <laughs> yes, it's me, Rancible Blench. Pass me another roast partridge. <laughs> maybe instead, Rancible Blench is some tireless young investigative journalist. Young investigative journalist Rancible Blench. Why not? Ran to his friends. You'll come to understand, Mr Blench, that interrogation is rather like squeezing maggots out of a dog. A thankless, repugnant task. One does not expect the dog to realise that, despite its pain, one is doing it a kindness. Rancible Blench. Yeah, it could work. You know, I don't know. But see how specifics immediately, you know, a name just gives us a bunch of pegs on which to hang our keys or indeed our knickers. Specifics are brilliant because we experience the world through specifics. I have a specific voice. Your coffee or tea today had a specific taste. The person sitting at the bus stop you saw had a specific face and a specific posture and a specific jacket that was a specific colour and had specific words written on it. The, the, the categories of jacket and face and posture are how we make sense of this stuff later. It's our filing system. But, and, and gosh, I mean, there's other names I like on that list. I like, like, Ferrantus Tusk is, is funny. Uh, Zeb Pickle is obviously a bad name, but it is funny. Um, Saro Vesper. I've used Vesperi already in... The honours, so I feel like I'm just returning to my own sick a little bit there. But Saro Vesper is a nice name. I'm also aware that a lot of these are in the D and D naming convention sort of thing, which is to take a word that slightly encompasses your character, change a vowel in it, and 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 then make one of their names like a real world name, but change a vowel in it, or you you know. Yes, Jesper or Jesper, I don't know how you pronounce that. Jesper Longthroat, that's just like a simple fancy naming convention. I quite like it. Um, I like Mendelev Risk. I like the cadence of that name. Pilcrow Filthwit, Niles Westfeather. Those are those are kind of nice. Lip, Lips Bosworth definitely sounds like a like a lackey of a crime boss. I like Lamia Ransom. Lamia Ransom. Hmm. I like Lady Merryweb Cortex, although that is a silly one. But Lady Merryweb Cortex... I like Cortex. is just a funny... Uh, it's like an amusingly wrong surname for a posh person in a fantasy setting. And I quite like that. It makes it almost convincing like seldom abraxas seldom is a nice first name for someone seldom that's lovely let's stop there i i, I don't want it sounds 
I hope it doesn't sound like I'm being too self-satisfied by just going, well done, Tim, and patting myself on the back. That's more, rather than that be being, because also my experience is that everyone who does this exercise comes up with some names that tickle them, right? The, the purpose isn't to create amazing ones. It's ones that tickle you, that make you go, oh, I enjoy creating. And that's been my ultimate takeaway from this today is I enjoyed creating those. And I've not wasn't terribly happy at the beginning of today. Um, I've been feeling low. And the reason I bring that up is, and I didn't bring it up at the beginning, is one, I didn't want to bum people out. But two, it's important just, I've said this before, but just important to remind you that when you do any long projects, your moods are going to go up and down. Things are going to happen in your life. And we need to just be mindful and hold that compassionately because you cannot, get through a whole novel at a continual pitch of wee woohoo kaloo kalay oh frabchous day you, you're gonna sometimes crappy stuff's gonna happen in the world crappy stuff's gonna happen in your like life you are gonna feel poo or tired or ill or low energy and you're going to come to your book and the danger is that you start thinking that's about your book or it's, it's over for you because you're not maintaining this continual one note level of vibrating enthusiasm and you don't ever need to do that there'll be times when you feel good about it and times you don't feel so good about it and times you just don't feel so good about life and times you feel amazing about life but doing this has lifted my spirits a little bit and I think that's a good thing and I want to normalize being happy about the stuff we produce in exercises as well. So that's the way I'm going to... I, I, I struggle a lot with self-criticism and it's lovely to do something and go, I'm. this reminds me why I like creating because I made a funny, lovely name. And it's why I enjoy playing role-playing games as well. And we spontaneously come up with a bit when we're playing together, when we're being characters. And that's fun. It's exciting. It's creation. And I stepped on a thumbtack with my heel uh, a couple of hours ago. And that's the first time I've ever done it. And it went all the way in. And I cried. I actually cried. And my wife had to... Well, she didn't have to comfort me, but she chose to comfort me. Because I'm not tough. And it hurts a bit now. And it's fine. If you've ever stepped on a thumbtack, you know that it's not the end of the world. But it's not nice either and it's just cheered me up doing this today so thank you for indulging me and I'm glad that I've indulged myself as well all I'm saying is I made some lovely sandcastles whoopee let's stop um next time I'm going to do some places and institutions I think some names of those because I've enjoyed this so much and because that's a, a missing piece that I haven't covered yet I liked this it feels like it's got a bit better than last time I don't want to constantly over-evaluate. Was this better than this thing? Did this work better than this thing? There can be all sorts of factors that lead into that. It's a multifactorial model of writing. But it seems to me at the moment, I want to tentatively hypothesise that tangibles are more zingy for me than intangibles, which I have to concede is precisely what Michael Moorcock, after I was a bit mean about him, that's precisely what Michael Moorcock advocated for in his suggestions for how to write a novel in three days. Come up with a list of interesting images. Imagery is more important than the action, he said. And I think he might be right, at least for me. 
you know, or, you know, I suppose the if I qualify that down to nothingness, I think it's a strategy that might work for this project for me right now, which is all we need. Look, if you enjoyed today's show and this series and the interviews I've been putting out, I've been trying to put out at least one thing a week and sometimes two episodes, which might be a little bit too much. I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm going to I don't want to overwhelm people so they can't listen to the podcast because I'm putting out too many. But certainly I'm trying to keep to a schedule of at least putting out one episode a week. Um, if you enjoy that, um, thank you for listening. And I can only do so because of wonderful support of listeners like you. Please consider going to my coffee page. That's uh, ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare and dropping me a few beans to keep the lighter on. Uh, link in the show notes, link on my website, timclarepert.co.uk, which is also where you can click a little button that says contact me to drop me a line and let me know what you think. I've had some great emails about this series and the novel we're putting together. Some really interesting thoughts and suggestions about schema I could use to organise this world and tropes different characters might fall into and inspirations for different characters that they might sort of models of real life people that they remind you of thank you for those uh keep them coming really enjoyed reading them and thank you especially if you've dropped me a donation it's actually genuinely incredible there's no way to talk about this without seeing seeming insincere and schmaltzy and like i'm trying to manipulate people into uh donating to the show and probably all of those things are, there's a grain of truth in them but thank you so much for the huge amount of support the show has received recently i've been really amazed i've been really amazed not because i think people aren't intrinsically generous but just the engagement per listener for this show is just so many people who listen to this show i just think i'm really really flipping lucky to have listeners who just get involved just feel like a community it's lovely and i get so many lovely letters and i get these donations that are allowing me to put a reasonable amount of time into doing the show and i'm trying to combine it now with like working on a novel so it can be part of my job so i can actually spend time on it but thank you you know because for starters everyone who donates is allowing me to do this but secondly uh, they are they're allowing this to be a free resource for everyone who can't afford to donate and i don't have anything hidden behind paywalls everything i do is available to everyone uh, that's important to me and i want to say thank you because people who donate it's a kind of doubly amazing thing whether you sign up to do a little tiny little monthly donation or whether you just give a one-off donation it's allowing loads of other people to listen in and have access and so much creative writing stuff is behind paywalls it's you know you have to go to university to do this you have to pay to join this workshop you have to pay to download this masterclass and i'm not saying that there's not a place for writers to get paid and paid properly for giving their skills across but i'm just also trying to meet demand in parts of the market because the more people who have access to free stuff the more people have access to this lovely world of writing whether they're writing for themselves to make sense of their own life to give themselves pleasure to get in touch with some emotions and memories that they want to have a better relationship with or whether they want to create stories that wow the world 
to do that and to get more people doing that we need people to have free access to writing and that's part of my philosophy i'm, I'm not i'm not a, i'm not a great or altruistic person in general but that's just something that's important to me so thank you genuinely it's cool of you and i'll do my best to keep putting out stuff that i think you'll like right that's it thank you so much for listening today today's episode i'd love to hear from you i hope you're having a lovely time and if you're not then i hope that listening to this has at least taken your mind off that temporarily i'll be back soon please take care and have a wonderful week of writing